Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our one 106.5 FM 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren, and you're not. That's Mr. Martini on the other side there. Yeah, yeah. Present present getting back present what here. are you gonna do i was thinking about you just just this oh, morning no. on the news i know it's just whenever <laughs> something bad happens i think be, uh no because you know where they're they're talking about you know they'll shut down 3g right because 5g they're gonna i guess go with that and they're gonna okay. shut down 3g and and the thing is, a lot of the old devices are are running on that so they won't work and one of the biggest ones was that you know that um I've fallen and I can't get up, you know, that little, <laughs> that little button you wear all the time around the uh, house. Yes. So what do you, I was thinking about you. I was thinking, what are you going to do? Dave's gonna I'm be, just not going to be able to get up. You're just, yeah, you're going to fall down in the basement and yep. you can push that all day and nobody's going to come and your cat will and, come down just when she wants some food or he wants food. Exactly. You're just going to leave me there, Al. I know. Well, well, yeah, you can work <laughs> from there. I mean, what difference yes. does it make? You don't care. No. I'll throw a bottle of water down there. Well, at least they get some water. Well, well, you have to be able to speak on air. That's the, you know, <laughs> that's true. Nothing else. Nothing else. Right. That's it. That's yeah, crazy. crazy. Maybe some bread. Yeah, it's a crazy world. I'm blaming this all on you. Um, <laughs> it's all my fault, Al. Yeah, I know. You and all this COVID and vaccine. It's all you. I know. <laughs> Ah, anyway, um, so yeah, so uh, we're moving on today, and of course we do more, we do a lot of authors, of course Dean Kuntz coming up next week, and uh, yep. so now we've got um, another great author, and uh, mm-hmm. we're going to talk about uh, her writing, 
and uh, where it all started, where it came from. And um, I know that she's got a book out now called The Coffee Boy, and there's a new book coming out in June of this year called Tomboy. And that's that's right down your lines there. <laughs> so um, let's welcome Shelley Blatton Stroud. Thank you for being here. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled. <laughs> we'll see if you are at the end of the show. <laughs> Time will tell. Time will tell. Maybe you'll hang up on us. Uh, well, this is uh, this is quite interesting. This um, uh, were you a writer your whole life? Was this sort of something that came on all of a sudden later? The second, you know, I wish I were like so many people. I'm sure you talk to, you know, will report. Oh, you know, in third grade, I wrote my first novel type thing. But yeah. I was, I wasn't that. You know what I was is a reader. I was a reader my whole life. My my dad, uh, when I was growing up, was the superintendent of a little country school. Or it was a district that was K-12, but the district was only one school and all in one, you know, one unit. And on the weekends, when our mother wanted to get us out of the house, my dad would take us there to, uh, my brother would ride his bike up and down the hallways of this big school. And my dad would let me into the library. And um, I was the only one there. And I kind of read my way through it, starting with the A's, which meant Louisa Alcott, of course, Little Women. <laughs> and that that's the really predictable part of it. So many women writers I know um, sort of featured Joe March from Little Women. And um, so that part's conventional. But really, I I don't know what it is. I'm such a, by nature, slothful person that I always thought, okay, I'm a reader. I can't be a writer. I couldn't rest myself up from this sedentary life to make uh, something like a book until I was in my 50s. And that's when I thought, you know, I I really could do that. I could make this thing that I love living in so much of the time. And so I turned myself into a writer instead of always being a writer. Well, well, that's that's interesting because that takes, I think, a little bit of courage there to jump into that and because you're doing it in the public. It's not like, well, I'm going to take a job at, at Starbucks and <laughs> learn to make coffee, whereas, you know, it, this is something that uh, can be on a national spotlight so you can do something and, you, you know, people can be really mean on the Internet. It's a whole different mm-hmm. world. Um, so was, was there a particular incident or thing that happened to you that made you make that jump? You know, I had been – I last Christmas time I retired from teaching. I, I taught uh, writing at Sacramento State, and I retired after 34 years. And I, so I had always been a teacher of academic writing. But um, about 10 years ago – um, my husband was scuba diving um, in Monterey Bay with our two sons when he had heart failure out in the bay. And one of our sons was kind of, who was a, a master diver at that time, kind of swam him to shore, got him, you know, you know, in an ambulance, got him to the hospital. And I was, I was actually at home getting ready to lead a library book uh, discussion. And I, the phone rang and it was our old, you know, uh, phone machines and it said Monterey Bay ambulance. And my first thought was, Oh my God, which one is it? Which one of the three is it? And, mm. um, I got myself down there and, and 
he got through that and he was fine and he is fine now, thank heavens. But really that period about 10 years ago coincided with our youngest son getting launched pretty much into the world, although they're never launched really. <laughs> but um, <laughs> at that time, we both said, you know, if there's something we want to do, we really ought to do it because we don't know how much time we'll have. Something could surprise us just like this heart incident did. And that's really when I um, started joining writing groups wherever I could just to see what this writing thing could be for me so it was maybe it was like the sense all of a sudden of impending loss that that I had devoted so much of my life to teaching and to my family life which is was and is a joy but I realized there was something I hadn't done and it kind of it wasn't just like I postponed it until then it was more like I realized it then that I did have something I urgently wanted to do. I'm a slow learner, apparently. It didn't occur to me <laughs> to that moment. <laughs> but you're a teacher. <laughs> I know. You know, and actually it's like if I've sort of tried to excavate all this, it's because what I, what teaching and what writing have in common is, for me, is that I love this experience of immersing myself into something, hoping to discover meaning out of it, like to read a lot of things, including my students' papers, trying to find meaning, and then to figure out how to reveal it to other people in kind of an efficient way, and then to have that communal experience of sharing it with them. And that was you know, teaching was that for me. It really was. It was like figuring out ways to do things, figuring out ways uh, to help other people do them, and then the experience of communing with them over it. And then <laughs> right about at 50 years old, I was thinking, you know, there's more efficient ways. <laughs> I could write these historical uh, novels, experience all of that meaning making, and then the sharing could be so much wider than the number of students I meet in an average semester. So they're not dissimilar, but the scale is different. And the private time and introverted time versus the public and extroverted time, uh, the balance is different. Well, do you feel uh, doing academic writing, uh, teaching writing, and I think you also did some business writing, yeah. do you feel that's made you a better fiction writer? Or was it a transition to be able to uh, create fiction of your own? Oh, my gosh. You know, a total transition. I won't pretend that being steeped in the wor uh, world of words didn't help me because it's not like I ever struggled to record words on paper. And it's not like I didn't know uh, or didn't have editing skills. I did have those skills. And in fact, the, the work I do with technical writers is with, I still do that. Um, I work with uh, economists and engineers and lawyers at the, independent system operators who operate the electrical grid in the United States. And my job is really to be an outside person who tells them when they're not making any sense at all to a normal person and to give them the strategies for writing more plainly and directly. And I think that in, in particular was really relevant to the way I like to write fiction because I, I, I do love beautiful language, but I prefer a stripped down 
kind of language. The editing out of what's useless is really important to me. Unlike when I'm speaking to you here now, I would probably hate to read the transcript of my oral <laughs> language. But in writing, I love a clean, clean kind of language. And that was affected by all those years of work. But on the other hand, learning how to write fiction, oh, my gosh, it was a very steep hill for me to climb in terms of structure and, um, you know, how to tell a story, how to shape a story. Um, that, that was the hard work for me. Mm. Remember that, Dave. We've got to send Shelly a transcript so she could mark. <laughs> <laughs> so I could have nightmares every night for the next yeah. few years. <laughs> We'll highlight it. We'll we'll put little tips on <laughs> on air and promote it. You know, this is well. It's um. So what do you? So you're not necessarily looking for literature in your writing. What is it you hope you achieve when you write a book like this, like like the two you've got? Yeah. Um. First of all, it's at this point in life. You know, I I want to have a meaningful experience. The writing is, you know. A core part of the writing for me is that meaning that I get. And you could see how it played out with my first book, Copy Boy. Um, it began with family story and it, uh, family, you know, my extended family, uh, was from, uh, central California, Bakersfield. And, and my people came to California during the Dust Bowl and, um, in particular, my dad was one of 10 kids, and boy, they could tell stories. And they were funny and detailed and full of all this gritty stuff. And, and sometimes, actually, quite often, they revealed mean streaks in their stories. And it was captivating as a kid to listen to all of that. And I had always sort of been steeped in this and took it in and just didn't know what it meant for me the kinds of stories they told because my life, you know, my parents raised me in a fairly middle class situation. I was unlike my dad's family. I did not live in a tent at the side of an irrigation ditch. I did not pick cotton in the morning before school and pick cotton after school. Uh, you know, so my life was totally different, but it was almost like my origin stories were inherited by my parents' generation and the previous generation. And um, the writing of these things, it, it, it gives me the opportunity, it gives me an excuse to linger over those stories and say, well, what if it means this? What if it means that? Um, and that has been one of the great things that I get out of writing these books. There are a million things I get out of them, but maybe that's the most personal to have the opportunity and the reason to keep going back and sort of dusting things off and saying, but is this connected to that? Does this story explain who my uncle is now? So this, this obviously has a, a lot of you in it and probably in the main character. You know, in some ways, it's, it's funny because in my series that my protagonist is Jane and um, she's going to be aging through this series. She will not be eternally 17 and 18. She'll be aging. And, and one of the things that I um, knew about her from the beginning was 
that she would make this totally fantastic crone of an old woman. That's what I really knew. I, I pictured her as being an oaky who can't, you know, during her early uh, years, she can't banish words like ain't from her vocabulary, though she tries so hard in order to be a gossip columnist in San Francisco. But by the end of her life as a crone, I saw her as being something of a badass old woman who would deploy her ain't, who would use her oaky background very strategically. And um, I kind of you know, kind of pictured an Ann Richards kind of figure with a mean streak and some style and some real rhetorical flourish. So I was picturing that. And you know what? I'm a lot nicer than that in real life. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not um, you know, I'm not that person who can cut, cut a man down. And, and the other thing about it that's different is that, um, well, I already told you that, you know, I would laughingly characterize myself as by nature being slothful and sedentary and careful. I don't do dangerous things. Why would a person do dangerous things? And my protagonist is the opposite. She is like impulsive. She makes bad decisions. Well, they would be bad to me, but they develop her and give her opportunities. And so I think that there's something in me that loves that and has never been that person. Um, in my own life, and I'm getting to explore it uh, through Jane. And as she's aging, as I'm continuing on in this series, I'm pulling in more of myself into Jane's character uh, as she modifies her impulsiveness and the risk she's willing to take. But I see you stealing your mother's Ford. <laughs> <laughs> Probably I would be in the tent looking out going, oh, my God, she's going to get in trouble (laughs) in real life. In real life, that would have been me. But I I kind of love it. I mean, my the characters that I love are the ones who get themselves in trouble and maybe get something done, accomplish something because they're willing to face trouble. Hmm. So in a way, you're having a lot of fun with this and you're you're sort of. You're sort of living out fantasies, sort of. It's true. It's true. It's a way of, you know, just like, I mean, I think it's interesting that it's true for both reading and for writing that, that stories are a way of trying on lives, trying on characters and experiences. And, um, always I did that with reading. I mean, I kept myself safe, but I experienced outlandish things by all the novels I read. And now I'm finding that I keep wanting Jane to do, you know, oh my gosh, here's an example. A woman who just has been editing Tomboy contacted me after and she said, you know, um, Jane is only um, 19 in this novel and I'm very uncomfortable with how much drinking she does. (laughs) I had to laugh and I'm like, Good. You should be uncomfortable. She shouldn't drink that much. Oh, my God. Think of the stuff she gets into because she's just drunk. And um, I want to put her there. Do I want to be that person who makes those bad decisions? No, but I enjoy seeing how she'll get out of it. Wow. So is is Jane in your head, so to speak? Like, do you, do you have like a... Uh... 
um, a separation with, with that character? Like, you know, is that character real to you? I guess. Oh I'm gosh! Saying. At this point, it might not have been so true if I had stopped with Copy Boy, which I originally intended, but it just kept nagging at me. I'm just not done with her. I, I want to see. I want her to solve more mysteries and confront more history as she ages. And because of that, I feel like she's, you know, someone I'm very close to. I had, you know, related to that, I had this super interesting to me experience when um, with the uh, audio book of Copy Boy, because the narrator, April Doty, when I listened to her reading it, I was so transported. I, I could not believe what she was able to do in conveying my characters, especially Jane, and and really remarkably, Jane is a very very old woman, and um and now it's like listening to her perform Copy Boy has moved April Doty, the narrator's voice, into my head more completely. So now when I I'm writing my third uh, in the series right now. I really hear her voice, April's voice, while I'm writing it. And um, it fills it out for me. How do you um, get into Jane's mind and your other historical characters? Well, there's all kinds of tools I've tried. Um, And one of them, it is interesting to me that, I don't know if you've talked to other writers about it. I know a lot of writers use this, but... um, I consult the Enneagram for personality types. Is that something you've talked to people about before? Uh, yeah, yeah, I have actually. Okay. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why it's useful to me, if anybody listening is not familiar with the Enneagram, it has this idea that there are nine sort of types of personalities. And um, mm. what it will suggest is that given the circumstance X, this person would be prone to doing these kinds of things because of why. And so an example would be um, that number three is the performer, the succeeder, the champion type. And that's what, that's what Jane is. She's someone who, she wants to win. You know, she wants to be at the top of the pedestal. Mm-hmm. She wants to get the big headline. She wants to solve the big story. Um, And so that was an entry point for me to fleshing out the characters that I didn't know as intimately as I thought I knew Jane. And and one of the things that I like about it especially is that when I write, I like to have kind of like a maybe a moral question or a, a philosophical question in the middle of things for me for the book. And it's useful to say, well, this is how Jane might answer this question in the in the beginning, and this is how she might answer it at the end. But what about her roommate? Well, she has a different personality type. How would she answer this question? And how would her boss answer this question? So I like to think about characters in such a way that they're not the same, that they kind of approach the world of the central question about what it's right to do that they approach it from different angles because, you know, that's the truth about life. It's the truth about the most important questions we face, that there's never one right way to answer it. There's never one right thing to do when you find a dead body uh, uh, on the pavement. 
You know, there are many possible responses. So I like to think about the core characters as each coming from a different place on that circle so that that question gets looked at at least a little bit from a variety of points of view. I'm wondering, too, has, has Jane ever done anything to uh, surprise you had, or, or any of your characters? Have they <laughs> kind of gone off the rails? Do they, uh, do they end up doing stuff that they're really not supposed to do for, for the way you're plotting out the story? Well, I, you know, I definitely I, I think a lot about the decision she's going to make. Here's one that in, in the book that's coming out in June, I don't think it's too bad for me to tell you this, but I, I, I knew I was going to have her. Um, have sex with a character in the book who she shouldn't have sex with. And, um, you know, she suspects him of killing somebody. <laughs> it was a bad idea. <laughs> so I knew that that would be bad. And I knew that it would happen. What surprised me when I wrote the scene was her behavior in that scene, um, in the sort of post-sex on the bed uh, scene, she becomes irritated with him, and um, and he leaves the room, and she does some tiny little immoral things that reveal she's not all that nice all the time. And you know, <laughs> sure, yeah, he's someone who may have killed somebody, <laughs> so he's definitely worse. But I was surprised. I was surprised myself at Joan at Jane stealing some things that belonged to him. You know, that caught me by surprise, but I believed in it. I believed it when it happened. So it, it isn't always true for me what other people describe, that the character can start to sort of take over and make you record mm. things you didn't intend. That's not always true <laughs> for me. But in that moment, I'm like, oh, my God, Jane, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that leads us to who is Jane to you? What is her character uh, really like? Okay, so, uh, you know, in the beginning of Copy Voice, she's a 17-year-old who, uh, she's part of an Oki uh, migrant to Sacramento, where I live. And um, she has two parents who are field workers. And um, Jane is, from the get-go, she is an ambassador ambitious girl, very, very ambitious, with with not enough social skills to let that play out appropriately. So she's not been real successful with her ambition. And her status in life um, makes it very difficult for her to succeed in the ways that she would want to. I mean, you know, girls can't really participate. This is set in 1937 in sports in the same way that boys can at that time period. And, you know, in like the stories that my dad and his siblings tell, um, if you're somebody who lives in a tent at the side of the irrigation ditch, you have no electricity, um, you pick cotton before school, you go to school. When you get to school, you um, you don't smell that great. You don't have plumbing, so you're probably not clean more than once a week. You go out to pick, uh, my, in my dad's case, it was cotton sometimes and potatoes for Janet's to, uh, tomatoes. And then when you get back to your tent, um, here you think you're the smartest girl in that school. But you know what? By the time you get back to your your tent, it's dark. 
you can't really do your homework in the dark. And, and that's something that I, I learned from my father who, who wound up being the superintendent of schools in Kern County. And, you know, he got his PhD and everything. He did so, so well. But, um, one of the things that makes him relate still at 85 makes him relate to children now is that you can't do your homework if you don't have electricity. You know, so let's not pretend that every single thing is about a person's merit, because there's plenty of stuff that prevents a, a person from achieving what they might by nature achieve. And that's who Jane is. She's somebody with a lot of potential. She's got a lot of ambition, a lot of intelligence, a lot of chutzpah, really. But a lot of things have gotten in her way. And so uh, she has a fight with her father and escapes the scenario to San Francisco during the Depression where she tries to get work and is not able to get a job in the Great Depression until she cuts off her hair and pretends to be a man. And then she does get work and sort of discovers who she can be, what she can do as a male um, that she couldn't achieve mm-hmm. things as a female. So that kind of tells you where Jane starts. That sounds like me now. hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's how I do it. <laughs> but don't tell don't tell anybody it's our secret and someone reads copy boy and and the upcoming book that you've got in the series when when they read it at the end of the book besides the story and the big adventure that jane goes through is there a subtext there is there something that you hope that they take away from it gosh there's so many um so many well one of them is uh the idea of relativity that and by that, I mean, there's no just one hard yes or no. There's no hard right and wrong that everybody has to confront their crises and sort it out. And, and in fact, I guess if um, if I took a look at the sort of overriding idea for the series, I'm always moved by um, the wire television show by Omar saying a man's got to have a code. And, and that's what I kind of think here that there's not just one code of honor that everybody adheres to, but they each as individuals really ought to figure out what their code is and live by it. So I, I guess Part of what I would take from my own books and hope that readers do, especially given the world that we're living in now, um, is that you should recognize that people all answer the same moral questions differently, and you had better figure out your method of answering that question. What is it right to do? What is it wrong for me to do? And, and, and realize that it doesn't always work. I mean, Jane will have her own code, um, but it won't always play out the way she thinks. Yeah. Uh, um, when you are doing this, then, like, what's what's your sort of um, how do I say? What's your style? Like, what, do you, do you sit down every day and write so many hours, or can you just? Uh, do it like that or is it ad lib is it just kind of how does that work for you what's your what's your kind of style of writing am i supposed to have a style already some people can just um go okay there's nobody home between 10 and 2 i can sit down and just write and they have no problem you know they can turn mm-hmm. it on write so many words turn it off and go go back to doing whatever they were doing other people have to be in a certain mood, like me, for instance. Uh-huh. If I'm not in the right mood, yeah. it's not going to happen. Yeah. No, I get that. I, I, it's kind of funny for me because when I was writing Copy Boy, everything about it was a question mark. Should I even do this? What is this really? You know, what am I trying to do? What is it like to write a novel? What are the parts I have to have? What part of this is stupid? You know, I was inventing it as I went along. And it took me 10 years to write it. But I was also teaching for um, writing classes and doing this coaching business and industry and, you know, launching my kids into life. So 
Um, it was slow. And I, I don't know if I could really say I had one method. I just I wrote that thing maybe four times while I tried to sort it out. And then what's funny is as soon as I decided that this was going to be part of a series, book two, Tomboy, I wrote in six months. So uh, it was totally different because I didn't have to learn who my protagonist was. There are a handful of characters who I already know very closely who continue on. There are new, fresh characters I have to get to know. So there is the work of that. And there's a new time period because it's going to keep moving forward a couple of years. Book two is in 1939. But um, the other thing that really radically changed was that uh, because in Copyboy, I explored really organically and just let things flow and followed threads and threw things away and started over. I wanted to try it in the opposite way, the classic pantser versus plotter kind of thing. So I decided on on Tomboy to be a plotter and see what that looked like. So I actually used the Save the Cat Writes a Novel um, theory mm. just to see, okay, if I'm a plotter using this, what will that look like? Well, guess what? It really did help me order the universe of that book. And it didn't ever for me feel like it was formulaic because so many weird things kept happening as I was writing my way through that plot. So many surprises kept happening with it that I, I really did like it. I would say that with Copyboy, there's a lot more that's impressionistic inside the mystery and there's a lot more maybe considering what things mean. Whereas I think in Tomboy, as my husband says, man, it moves. Everything just moves. And I'm kind of thinking that in my third book, there will be kind of a merge between the two. That, um, that I'll know how to make it move the way I intend, but I'll also know how to open up a little crack and let something else slip in that isn't in a rush. So I, I guess what I'm thinking, part of what I love about doing this as a series is it's a great opportunity for me to learn things as I go, to keep evolving the way I do it. You know, when, you, when you're writing in an era like that, like the Depression, 30s, 40s for stuff, mm -hmm. um, are, are, do, do you try to be very careful with, how you word things with today's date and the way people are, um, you know, you can, you can be jumped on for saying it the wrong way or promoting yeah. something. Do you have to be, I, 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 I'd imagine, do you think about that a lot? I wouldn't say it kind of came up a lot, but it did come up in copy boy because, um, well, an example would be, so we've got, uh, Jane and her family are from Texas and they are, you know, currently living, you know, in this scenario I described to you and among other people just like them. And, and in Sacramento, the Hoovervilles um, that were historically in Sacramento, they each had kind of colonies. There were separate colonies of Hoovervilles and there was a colony of Russian born um, uh, migrants. There was a colony of Texans. There were different colonies, so they had these little cultures within each of the Hoovervilles, and the fantastic names, Rotten Egg Hooverville and 
oh, that's my favorite, but Sneak Bite Hooverville. Um, and so Jean is from a little culture, a little subculture with its own worldview, and she would not have been extremely open to other kinds of people because she wouldn't know them. You know, she would have no experience of them and no, um, you know, just no familiarity with the kind of empathy you get for people who are unlike you if you're kind of accepting that, eh, you know, lots of people are uh, different than me. Well, she didn't really have that at first. So her opening up and having more empathy for other people who are different than her is part of her story. So as an example, she'll use a term when uh, I don't know if, you know, how you'll feel about this, but when she meets someone who's black, she'll say colored. And why does she say colored? Because that is exactly what my grandmother would have said at that time and place. Um, and that's one example. Oh, and, and in Tomboy, because I'm dealing with uh, some lesbian characters, I I have her remembering in her head the words that her mother would use to describe lesbian women. And so I I need to say it because you need the context, but I try not to make Jane somebody who lingers in it. I make her somebody mm-hmm. who wants to figure this out. And and part of it is maybe inspired by my one of my grandmothers who told me uh, my mother's mother uh, grew up in Oklahoma, not Texas, and uh, near um, Indian reservations, Native American reservations. And um, I asked her one time, uh, how badly were the people there treated? And she said, you know, we treated them really badly. And I said, why? And she said, Well, because we were on the bottom and we had to believe somebody was below us. And Mm. I kind of have that spirit of my granny in there who, at her old age, understands what was going on with her. The need to make someone lower than you on the totem pole. Well, in the same vein, um, did did you need to do a lot of research for these novels or were you able to rely on family stories? I had to go outside of uh, family stories because what what part of the fun for me is to situate like we've got Jean growing up, you know, going through her lifespan in this series. But part of the fun is to place her at different ages in different historic periods to figure out how the things happening at that time would work on someone like her and how they would how she would affect them, too. So. As an example, in Copy Boy, uh, the, the, the bulk of the trouble that's not about Jane herself, but about the plot, relates to, it was inspired by uh, WPA documentary photographer Dorothea Lang, who, um, you know, took the famous picture that everyone would recognize, migrant mother Nipomo, of um, a destitute woman with, uh, you know, a few of her children clustered around her, the woman with her hand on her cheek looking off in the distance. And when when Dorothea Lange's photograph was published, it led to 20,000 pounds of food being delivered by the federal government to that Hooverville to feed these starving people. So her, I, I was using 
what I knew through research about Dorothea Lange and the work she did, I've always adored her photography. It means something to me because it's like she took photographs of my very own family and then recorded them as beautiful art in which they have dignity. So I've always been drawn to her work. But when I researched her work um, and her life, it revealed problems for me that became really important in the novel. One example would be that um, in order to do her work as a woman in 1936, it was when she was taking that photograph, um, she and her husband um, put their children up into foster care. So, you know, if they have this handful, you know, four kids, and they put them in foster care, so that she and her husband could travel Highway 99 in California and meet the people who are working and starving alongside the roads and record their experience and report it to the world to do the right thing. So clearly there is the right thing she's trying to do. But you know what? I don't think her children love that. You know, I and when you read the research, I mean, there is – there is some cruelty in her doing the right thing. And that's the kind of thing that you discover when you do the research that, you know, we, we don't want it to be flat. We don't want just what did she accomplish and how did she accomplish it? We want what did she have to choose in order to accomplish it? And what will Jane decide as a result of witnessing that? And mm-hmm. so I, I did a lot of research into, um, into Dorothea Lange and and uh, other uh, Dust Bowl photographers and reporters and and some in terms of uh, John Steinbeck too, um, the work that he did. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, the the research was fun. It I think as long as I keep Jane and her human development at the core, like at the spine of these stories, then I get the great joy and fun of doing research to say, well. What would happen living in San Francisco in the 50s when the beatniks are there? And how would Jane be then? You know, so the research is really important to me, though I would say Jane's character is really the spine of it. Hmm. Your extra characters, where do they come from? Are you like out scouting people in coffee shops? or? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, for... For Tomboy, which is coming out in June, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do there. And then I was at a book club uh, talking to them about Copy Boy. And I, I was telling them that I'm very interested in this ambition of Jane's because sometimes her ambition makes her do the wrong thing in terms of other people. And, you know, she kind of, you know, that that's a theme in Copy Boy, too, with with a photographer based on Dorothea Lange. And I wanted to continue it. And I thought, you know, I wonder, I think that the very best way to, literal explicit way to witness female ambition is in sports. And, um, but what sport in 1939 would be a big enough venue so that a woman's success or failure in it could seem really significant and and it kind of had to be tennis it, it was really only tennis as far as I could tell so that that woman's success or failure would be something almost everybody would know about 
And so I was saying this in the book club. And uh, Carolyn Martin, who was hosting the book club, said, well, you need to read uh, Robert Weintraub's book, um, The Marvelous. Uh, oh, gosh, the name just jumped right out of me. The title did. But it's it's a biography of Alice Marble, who was um, a, te- a real life tennis player in San Francisco at exactly that time period. She won the 1939 Wimbledon uh, Championship. And it was the last one before Wimbledon was canceled for World War II. And she was a spy during World War II. She, um, she designed and edited the Wonder Woman comic uh, book series. She was, uh, you know, a singer in nightclubs. She was a fascinating woman. So, and she also had a long-term relationship with her coach, who was uh, a woman. And who's, and that relationship had to be kept secret because even though, um, Alice was world famous for her tennis and all of her accomplishments and for her great beauty, charm and charisma, if the world had found out that she and her coach loved each other, then she would have lost everything. So when you say, where do I find characters? I mean, reading about Alice Marble, I knew I would not make Alice Marble and uh, teach Tennant, her, her lover and coach, I would not make them characters in my book, but I was certainly inspired by them. Um, and so that's where I say, okay, if the, if they are the inspiration for two major characters in this book and, um, and I have Jane as being this kind of ambitious person. Well, what kind of ambitious person can Tommy O'Rourke be? What kind of ambitious person can Coach be? So it kind of starts with historical. If, if it's not a family member, <laughs> then it starts with historical <laughs> figures. And then those figures get altered because I mean, I have people killing each other. So I can't pretend it's Alice Marvel. <laughs> you know, um, I have. You know, a character based on um, Henry J. Kaiser of uh, Kaiser Permanente and Kaiser Shipyards and so on. And Henry J. Kaiser did not go out and kill people, but my character might do that. So he's inspired <laughs> by Kaiser, but he's not Kaiser. And so I, I start that way and then I move away from, from the facts. So what people do you kill? People that you know, like family members or people that you know, <laughs> students that students in the class, you know, well, this is going to be a character and he's going to suffer. That's one. Gosh, you're making me feel guilty right now because I realized that in the first two books, um, the people who get killed are um, vulnerable. That doesn't mean that they're without gumption or... Um, quality, intelligence, an idea, but they're at risk. In both books, the person who is the victim is vulnerable and at risk culturally. And um, that's sort of what spurs Jane into wanting to make that right, because even though she's experiencing success on her own, um, she will really relate to vulnerable at risk girls so i said i feel bad about that because i know there's a thing in mysteries where people are always killing off girls you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. um i don't want to be that person who writes 
you know, 20 novels killing off girls. So things are going to have to change. So I can't just keep having Jane confront her resentment and anger over her own vulnerabilities by rescuing people who are similarly vulnerable. I, I think I need some dead bodies at the other end of the continuum, too. Oh, yeah. There's plenty of men out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. There's plenty. Um, now, uh, let's see. Uh, wh- what would you want people to take away from your book then? So someone picks up mm-hmm. Copy Boy, takes it home and reads it. What is it you hope that they take away from that? Um, you know, when I was, Copy Boy in particular, when I was writing it, um, I had come off of, I for 10 years I led um, book groups at the local library. And I had two teenage groups and I had an adult group. And the adult group, we read 100 books together. Um, before I quit. And, and when, when my husband had heart failure, I, I quit leading the groups and decided to write instead of read with, with others. And that experience of reading so many books with other people in book groups made me want to tell stories that were fun to read. Like they make your heart pound. There's action. There's momentum. People do things. And yet at the same time, there's enough to chew on idea-wise so that you finish the book and you know you enjoyed it because it was interesting or surprising or moved so quickly. You didn't realize the time uh, went by so quickly. But also that you put it down and then you think, you know, that is kind of like my grandpa. You know, my grandpa did have that kind of experience. And and that's what I would want them to know about the Jane Benjamin novels, is that I'm aiming to make it a fun, lively reading experience, but also for you to feel like you're thinking about people you know in different time periods who've had experiences not unlike that. I'll tell you one example would be I met with a book club in San Francisco and uh, there's a, a big scene that takes place at this at a roadhouse in San Francisco that's based on Roberts at the beach, a, a real life road uh, roadhouse. And um, and some outlandish things happen in it that are based on reality. Well, in this book club, you know, that group was mainly talking about the meaning of you know, mothering and ambition and news and factors and fiction and all that kind of stuff. But this one woman was like, hold on, everybody. I grew up in San Francisco and my grandfather was a bartender at that bar. And the, the, um, there's a story in the, in the novel about the bartender, um, winning a bet in which he put his, his horse uh, in the ocean, in the, or in the San Francisco Bay, and had it swim across the bay from Marin to, uh, I can't remember exactly what the location was. And it was a real life story. And, um, the woman in that book club said, my grandfather or uncle, I can't remember, was there. He saw that horse swim that. And at that just launched all these people into saying, you know, I've been to this bar that you're talking about, and it still has that terrible bathroom and things like that. So there are the fun things about, a con- a, you know, f- relatively recent history, the fact that you can go someplace, you can be in that park, you can swim in that pool, which is a setting in the, in the novel. 
and it makes it very real and richer for you in real life. But also there are kind of the ideas behind it that make you think about it later. So that's what I want for for my readers. I want them to know they should expect to have fun and to enjoy it as entertainment, but more than entertainment. Now, um, how do you like to interact with your uh, readers? Like, do you have a website? Do you have uh, social media? What, oh, what, yeah. what do you like people to do? Well, you know, I try to make it easy. And my website is just ShellyBlantonStroud.com. And if you go there, I've got all kinds of ways to connect with me. You can subscribe to a newsletter, which I send out every two weeks. I'm on Facebook. I have an author page that's my name, Shelley Blanton Stroud. The same on Twitter. And um, I don't do so much on Instagram, really. But um, so those are the best ways. And, and you can contact me um, via email through my website, too. That's, that's where I meet a lot of book groups because I have a, a page that talks about getting together for events. And people reach me that way. You need to get on TikTok, start dancing around. I some know. Music oh, my gosh. I've got to work on my dancing skills first. <laughs> oh, that's always good. How was, how was the COVID for your writing? I mean, did, 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 did it give you um, some sort of a pause, or did it affect your writing itself? You know, it, it's provoking some change because the COVID period, I was I launched my uh, – copy boy in June of 2020. So it's like everything I thought I would be doing, I was no longer doing. And then shifting to virtual events, which was fascinating. But I was also teaching, um, you know, for two semesters in COVID. And then I immediately started writing Tomboy. So what I, I'm trying to tell you is that because of COVID and shifting everything to being virtual, I sat, I feel like I sat for 18 months. You know, in front of this computer, everything was in front of the computer. And I feel like I, I made a lot of progress in my writing, but I don't think I made a lot of progress in my body or my character or my well-being, you know. Mm. And so it's kind of provoked some changes where, you know, my I'm getting a stand-up desk that's arriving this week. And, and I'm experimenting now with um, with dictating while I walk. And then sending what I write that way off to a uh, tr- an AI transcription service to see if there's like one or two paragraphs I can use as a starting point when I get back to my desk. So mm. um, that's not all worked out yet. That's just me saying I can't live the rest of my life just sitting at my desk the way I did during the pandemic. See, Dave, it can be done. <laughs> no more no more apple crisp with ice cream <laughs> you know that's it's it's enough okay you know? i can stop putting pictures on facebook that's <laughs> yeah right. that's true <laughs> yeah, he's giving it away <laughs> so um now the book dubai is called coffee boy now if if you don't get it you're insane <laughs> you, need to, you need to buy this book and then you need to buy the follow-up which comes out in june that's I right. believe that's called Tomboy, right? Yes, it is. So, you know, don't miss this, people. And we will have um, your website up as well. Um, our guest is the writer of both these books. And, um, and what can I say? Thank you for being here, Shelley Blanton's crowd. Well, thank you. It was an awful lot of fun. More fun than I usually have on a Tuesday. <laughs>
<laughs> Thanks, Shelley. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.